Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. It's commonplace to hear people referred to as smart, intelligent, and possessing a high IQ. Now, sometimes you might call people stupid, dumb, and possessing a low IQ. These are value judgments in terms of somebody's intelligence. So when you investigate the concept of IQ further, it becomes apparent that a person's score is based on an arbitrary set of factors that have their basis in the philosophy and presuppositions of those who create the test. Placement in jobs, whether or not you get into a university, your IQ might be a factor in having you be accepted or hired. Today, Calcedon Vice President and I will be discussing a different, more fundamental concept, that of moral IQ. Martin Selbretti's latest article in the Calcedon publication, Arise and Build, provides an extensive examination of moral intelligence. Thanks for joining me today, Martin. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Should I be concerned with evaluating my moral IQ and by what standard should I do so? Yeah, your moral IQ is going to be the one that actually is going to impact your life most significantly, not only here, but on the other side of eternity. Uh, so yeah, it is going to be the one that actually matters, that actually counts. The second half of your question, what's the standard? Who's, who's running the tests? Well, there's only one person who's qualified to run those tests, and he actually provided some pretty good yardsticks for determining how we're doing on that front. But, of course, human beings want to throw the creator's yardstick away and uh, substitute their own yardsticks for what constitutes moral intelligence, what constitutes ethics. They want to have ethics without God, to put it in a simple form. And uh, ethics without God always leads to extremely unethical, immoral, and catastrophic results uh, and tyranny. Okay, so let's, you know, parse these terms. What's the difference between morality or morals and ethics? Well, ethics is considered kind of the science where you have the standard set uh, of uh, conduct of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, and so it provides the content, if you will. Where do you get your ethics from? What's the source of your ethics? It seems to me the same uh, general idea as morality, but a morality is something that uh, drives you from the heart outward, whereas ethics can be a set of abstract principles. So uh, morality tends to be where the rubber hits the road and uh, consequently uh, tends to be the more important one and uh, generally also the one that matters in real-life situations. Uh, we say, oh, this, you did something unethical, but when we say someone did something immoral, then all of a sudden a judgment has uh, come on the scene. Because someone's ethics, you know, how do we judge someone's ethics? You know, unless God tells us we can. Uh, and so therefore, the the abstract side of ethics tends to keep it at arm's length, whereas morality seems to put it right, drops it right in our lap, as it were. So we hear today, you have your truth, I have my truth. So with that way, or with that standard, then you have your morality and I have my morality. You have your ethics, and I have my ethics. So is this how we decide if we're a moral person? I live up to my standards, therefore I'm moral. You don't live up to my standards, therefore you're immoral. All right, we're right back to the old question, whose standards are we going to use? 
Uh, and that's the interesting thing. Under statism, you can enforce a, a set of ethics that are not biblical. Uh, in fact, that will deliver tyranny and injustice left and right, uh, as opposed to what the Bible requires, that every man does right by his neighbor, love the, your neighbor as yourself. You should, And so the rules for that are laid out. And uh, hum- humanism is very intent on substituting its own set of rules and situational ethics, where they say ethics isn't grounded in any kind of absolute, and morality doesn't therefore have to be uh, anchored to uh, an absolute law or, or an absolute sense of what, re- what is real and what is not. But whatever man says it is, the time matters, which, of course, means that the current moment is always judging last year and the last decade and the last century with today's standards, and then today's standards, which are considered ethical, are going to be judged to be unethical in 10 years, 20 years down the line by humanists, because humanists are always moving the goalposts. Right. And by moving the goalposts, uh, there's a reason they do that. It's convenient, because that way they can rationalize and justify their conduct at all times. There's a um, ulterior motive between all uh, that drives, I think, all those different approaches to ethics and morality. Everyone wants to be on the right side of the line, and they draw the line so that they're on the correct side. Uh, and that's why moving the goalposts is very important to them, because that way everyone can have their own morality, uh, as it were. The problem is, is that that suddenly runs out of steam once you're standing in front of the white throne at the end of history. All of a sudden, that goalpost isn't helping you any at all. In fact, it's turning around to condemn you. Because as Paul noted, he says, even your own conscience is dictating to you and telling you that what you're doing is right or wrong. Uh, you're just simply overriding it. You have a seared conscience, for example, that prevents you from making the right decisions. And you might talk yourself into the fact that you think you're doing the right thing and rationalizing away evil and calling good evil and evil good. And ultimately, once you depart from God's standards, you have no place else to go except to call good evil, which is what God's standards call evil. And to call evil things the things that humanism concocts as a good, the new good. Right. And, uh, and of course we always have a new good every day. So what's good today is not going to be good tomorrow. Uh, and so that means that everyone is guilty. Now we're back into the fact that guilt is imputed wherever there's immoral conduct. And if the uh, status the humanists can in, continue to impute guilt upon us, then we could become a, an enslaved people because we lose all our spirit. We lose all our impetus to act because now guilt paralyzes. Okay. Now there was an example you gave, which I thought um, was telling in your essay about feminism and how feminism created a line in the sand. Um, especially with regards to college athletics. In other words, there weren't as many women's sports as there were men's sports. So then we had a law that said it has to be equal. And this was a triumph for feminism because now girls get to have as many athletic scholarships as guys. But there was a precedent there that has now come back to bite women's college athletics. Explain how that's a moving goalpost. Correct. This has to do with, of course, the transgender uh, situation as, 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 as it has developed over time, now to the point where demands are being made on, a, on a alleged moral grounds to not exclude certain people from competing in these college athletics. And what happens when a, a radical feminist says, hey, that was, we spent all this energy the last several decades 
trying to get our slot, and now it's being taken over by people that we don't think should be competing, uh, and therefore they become labeled TERFs, T-E-R-F-S, right? Which is a trans-exclusionary uh, radical feminist or reactionary feminist. I forget what the R is, but one of the two. It simply means that, well, you got your piece of the pie, and now that the next group wants their piece of the pie, you're objecting to it. Uh, so you benefited from your activism, and now other people are are agitating for their rights, and you want to deprive them of their right uh, to say uh, we're we're men, women now, and we want to compete in women's sports, notwithstanding our biological construct. Uh, we should have these rights, and, and when when that happens, then of course the inevitable physical differences between the the male and female body types becomes manifested in radically disparate results. Right. Uh, in competition. Uh, but if you lift a finger in protest, then you are the target now because uh, your morality has now become immorality. And this is what happens is that uh, humanism kind of consumes its own, if you will. Uh, they always say the revolution eats its own. And so, too, it, it happens in this instance because there's no standard for right and wrong. It can shift Today's good guy, which would be the radical feminist by humanist standards a few years ago, is now the bad guy. They're now TERFs. They're right. trans-exclusionary radical feminists, as it were. And so let me so, say this, though. What's not examined in that was the moral principle that this is not a proper area or jurisdiction of government to intercede and say, who gets to play college sports? So we might be fighting or these two groups might be in opposition to each other, but have people recognized that the state in making itself God here has put forth the morality that says we create the standard and whoever is in charge at any given time, that's the standard. It, it makes sense from the state's standpoint because name of one of these universities or colleges that isn't receiving federal funds. Wherever the funds go, the strings go, and wherever the strings go, the new ethics will follow and be imposed and inflicted on everyone who's receiving the funds. So if you want to operate without the government funds for your programs and your universities, uh, you might not have to worry about all this. But the fact of the matter is no one wants to be deplatformed. No one wants to do without the money. And uh, because uh, we are covetous as a nation, things stay where they where they are. This kind of a warning sign to everyone who says, "Hey, how about vouchers for schools?" Well, pay attention to what's going on in the college athletics area, and you'll see one good reason why you don't want to have government money. Because then, uh, he who um, pays the piper calls the tune, and this right. is exactly what's happening. The government's calling the tune on ethics and morality. And that's a scary thing when the government says this is right and this is wrong. You're depriving these people of these rights, which is a wrong uh, to deprive them of it. And so they can create rights out of thin blue sky, uh, out of the air. And they do that routinely. They did it certainly with abortion, as most people who've examined Roe v. Wade dispassionately have determined that uh, there were no penumbras. It was a terrible piece of legislation. Yeah, if you were pro-abortion, that was not the way to do it. <laughs> it was it was a fragile thing, and it was proven to be fragile because the Supreme Court simply undid it, saying it was bad law. They put it back to the states so they can make bad law about it and uh, institutionalize murder, if you will. That's the way we would see it here and the way God would see it. But uh, the fact remains that whenever the state's involved, we have the tyrant back in, in, in 
in place and driving the bus. And that's on us because we're not going to the pulpits to determine what's right and wrong because the pulpits have thrown out God's law by and large. And so they basically go with the flow of whatever people think is right and wrong. Uh, Rush Dooney would always say, that the general uh, consensus of humanism is the voice of the people is the voice of God. Whatever the people want, that's what God wants. Uh, in fact, they, it makes the people their mass voice, their plurality, their majorities, as if it was the God of the system. And in humanism, it is the God of the system because they, they could theoretically vote, could throw the bums out. They never do, but they could. And therefore, there's some fear between the uh, the governors and the, the people at large. But it's, the principle still holds. So in an essence, you're talking about how morality becomes weaponized. Yeah. And in the process, you, you might say, well, then God's morality is weaponized also. He says, if you do this, this is what should happen, etc. But you point out that the coercive nature of enforced morality doesn't remake someone. They don't become born again because of enforced morality, whereas for the believer, the Holy Spirit indwelling them changes them from the inside out. All the state can ever do is change you from the outside with the attempt to change you on the inside. Right. They uh, have a faith in, in basically an externalized gospel that by manipulating all the environmental variables, the externals, uh, they can create the desired result. Uh, it doesn't matter to them what you I think on the inside necessarily as long as you toe the line and do what you're supposed to do. Uh, and consequently, it's a very empty form of ethics. It's utilitarian in the extreme. In fact, it follows through with the general principles of utilitarian philosophy. Whatever works is good. And, and, and it's working fine. Don't, don't, you know, rock the boat. Keep ethics the way it is because it's, society is functioning. Whether it's going to hell in a handbasket is not so important as long as it seems to be functioning and people are tolerating it to the level of their uh, what they can stomach, as it were. But, uh, yeah, your point is taken that that you know, it's weaponized in the sense, uh, the humanistic law weaponizes it in the sense that every law that is passed and, and that is supposedly is in determining a right and wrong because it's saying if you do this, these are the consequences, requires enforcement at the human level. But the vast majority of God's law does not require human enforcement. In fact, God reserves to him, his, himself the right to enforce many of his laws. Well, give an right. example of that, because I don't think people act, they think the Bible, hell, fury, and God's pounding on you every time you turn around, or he wants somebody else to. Give an example of a law that's clearly stated in Scripture, but God doesn't give anyone, church, state, or family, the jurisdiction to deal with it. Oh, well, you, the, the tithes, for example, are not enforced by the state under biblical law. They cannot compel you to tithe. The land Sabbaths, for example, letting your land not be worked for every seventh year so it can rest and recharge the soil. Uh, there's no human rule against that in the sense that there's no enforcement of it. If you do it, it looks like you got away with it, and you can continue to plant all the way through the seventh year and then back to the eighth year, continuing not letting the land rest. This is a good example of how God ultimately will enforce it, because he did finally enforce it on Israel in a very profound way after they had violated it for 490 years running. God says, okay, time's up. I'll give you 70 times seven opportunities to repent. I forgave you 70 times seven. 
and uh, you would not let the land rest. So you're going to be deported to Babylon, and my land shall enjoy her Sabbaths. But God does not act quickly or capriciously. Uh, there's no question that he was right to do it because how, uh, how we have basically sinned with a high hand, Israel did, and violated the law and figured, no, nope, God's not doing anything about it. We'll just continue to break God's law. And that was not the intent of uh, God not enforcing it. He, he left it up to us to do the right thing. He, he treated men as mature, thinking, intellectual, moral creatures. He didn't treat us like robots or idiots. And consequently, the, when we were given that opportunity to fulfill our potential and we fail miserably, uh, then on our children and children's children, the penalties can fall. You know, the same thing happens when you do certain things, then, hey, what happened to the, the rain? Why is there drought? Well, that's God's way of saying there's a problem here. It was three years of drought because of Saul and his uh, son, seven sons, uh, having gotten Scott free after murdering the, the, the priests of Nob. So we have instances where justice had to be done in order to get the weather back on track and, and get a rain back in place. And so those are areas where God is enforcing, but man is not. Sometimes a man suddenly realizes God's not happy because the things that God controls, like the weather, the rain, fertility, whether I have a hole in my purse, as uh, I think Haggai points out, uh, first chapter, uh, all of a sudden this is indicative that there's a problem. When, when man is attempting to play God, he doesn't exercise the kind of restraint or the kind of patience, long-suffering that God does. And so there really isn't a need for new man-made laws. God's law covers the whole gamut, but in the essay, you said man-made laws are put into place to protect people's sin. Give an example yeah. of that. The way that Dr. Rashtuni puts it in place is that uh, almost all humanistic law has at their root the principle of respect of persons. That is, one group is treated differently than another. And that's actually what's going on right now when we talk about college athletics, is that the groups uh, are have making various demands about how they are to be treated uh, backward and forward, and each one has a different idea of what that should look like. Uh, but it's all because they want respect of persons in some way, shape, or form. They want to have favoritism and, spe- and special treatment, uh, and this is exactly what God's law forbids. Everyone's supposed to have the exact same rule for them, whether they're in Israel or whether they're a stranger to Israel. Uh, and that's why everyone plays the exact same amount to support civil government in Scripture. Next is 30. It's half a shekel of silver every year for anyone to male 20 years and up, and up in age. So that means that everyone has the same stake in justice, and therefore should the same justice should be delivered to everyone impartially. But this is precisely what the government does not want. When the government starts to say, well, hey, let's have limited liability laws. Uh-oh. All of a sudden, we are showing favoritism for one person over another. We're showing favoritism for, oh, your uh, vaccine needs to be uh, favorably uh, treated. Oh, your vaccine has a problem. We should probably tell people not to get your vaccine. Oh, you have a cure for this? That could be a problem because we have a special arrangement for the vaccine that says if a cure shows up, can't use that vaccine because it's an emergency use authorization for it. So all of a sudden, we have all these special rules and special regulations that are uh, man, where we are manipulating very minutely exactly how we want the economic and uh, cultural results to play out. And uh, this kind of manipulation is exactly what uh, is involved in the word injustice, because there is no equity, there is no parity. 
there is only favoritism and everyone looking out for their own interests. And that is because under humanism, you not only have a conflict of interest, but you institutionalize the conflict of interests. So you always are stuck with that. Under right. biblical law, everything's set up as a harmony of interests, and you can do a lot uh, with uh, under a harmony of interests that cannot do when everyone's at each other's throats, or everyone thinks the worst of the other person. And yeah. So I think it's a, that's one example among many that we can show uh, where people are, in fact, using law to sin. I mean, right off the bat, people were very unhappy uh, when Roe v. Wade uh, was repealed because it seemed to them that it meant there was something wrong with an abortion, you know, that that now the government was getting into a moral judgment on the women who had one. Whether that's true or not, it was felt to be true, and that was enough to rage ires because if it was legal, that's all we need to know because if it's legal, it's right. Exactly, but, and at the time, the argument was this is not a moral question. This is a health issue. So you're right about the uh, the goalposts changing. The interesting part is, though, when we make moral arguments, the question is, says who? Okay. And usually, at least the way it plays out now, who has the biggest loudspeaker? Who has made sure that their viewpoint is not being censored, etc.? But you don't need a advanced degree to read the scripture. And God's moral code, so to speak, is right there. And it's pretty accessible. And I think the quote is to Mark Twain. It wasn't the obscure parts of the scripture that he had a problem with. It was the parts that were very clear. And I think that's actually what a lot of people have problems with. But even the people who claim certain groups have privilege, what do they want now? They want privilege. So they obviously don't have a problem with privilege. They just have a problem with their own selves not having the privilege. So they even manifest the fact that they're inconsistent, but it doesn't matter, as you pointed out, if you can scream louder. It boils down to a, a war, and the question then is it's a, uh, a contest of force. Who's going to go into the streets and scream louder and protest and break things and set fires? Uh, and this is what I'm talking about, the conflict of interests that humanism invariably uh, sets in motion. Uh, it Because when you do set it in motion, guess what you need? A big state. <laughs> and so you get a lot of uh, government bureaucrats regulating everybody to try to control the uh, conflict of interests and shape it to a some kind of common goal. At least, at least we don't have self-destruction in the mix. Ultimately, you do, by the way. Uh, this is laid out in Micah 6, verse 14, and, uh, and as a consequence of what Micah is seeing in the Israeli households, he's saying, hey, you guys have uh, the scant measure and the treasures of wickedness in your house. You have unjust weights and measures in your home. You have defla- inflated currency. And as a result, the uh, collapse of this nation will be from the midst thereof, in the middle of it. It will be an implosion of the nation as a result. Uh, the fact that you guys are stealing from one another. And the whole deal with inflation is everyone wants to be the first one to get the new money, uh, the new loans, because then you're on top of the game. You're, you can be the, uh, you can start buying things before the prices rise as a result of the fact that the currency has been debauched. And this kind of system is exactly why uh, God calls it an abomination. We call it clever economics. We call, we call it Republican and Democratic. Uh, economics, because both are guilty of this uh, this action, uh, and because we benefit from it, 
we suffer from what Rashtuni calls so tellingly larceny in the heart. We want to pay off our debts in cheaper dollars. Uh, and the government will protect our right to do this. And it's not a right. It is an immoral act because uh, thou shalt not steal is part of the Ten Commandments. And yet theft is baked into our economic system because we want to steal from our neighbors and, our, and the banksters uh, and everyone else that we can by paying off debts in cheaper dollars. And if the currency is inflating, then the people who uh, are contracting debt are the better off for it when it comes time to pay back because the dollar has cheapened in the meantime, and therefore money trans- we now have a benefit, right? And so what happens? Then, of course, the interest rates have to change to try to compensate for it. So every time the government creates an injustice, it has to fix it with another injustice. And that's where we stand. So for us to even talk about right and wrong in humanism is kind of a misnomer. We should talk about various levels of wrong <laughs> and various levels of evil. Uh, and unfortunately, because that's all they can do. They really cannot do anything positively good until they return to the law of God and implement it in its totality. And then the system is righteous and just. And then harmony prevails. And then you can wind government down to its proper biblical size. Until that time, you have a second God in play. You see, you have the true God who actually gives us what is right and wrong. And then you have the state, which says these things are legal and illegal. Right. And, and we dictate and we treat that as if that was morality and it's not. It's simply statist uh, practicality, pragmatic uh, argumentation. So you point out that the words ought and should are very important to this discussion because for them to have any meaning goes back to who says so. Why yeah. is it so? Yeah. And the second you use those terms, you're now making a moral judgment on something or somebody. Uh, it's inherent in those words. There's a, there's an, an imperative behind them when you say you should or you ought. There's a sense of command, moral command and obligation being inflicted or imposed on you. Either you've neglected it or someone's trying to put an incorrect one upon you, but one way or the other, it's there. Uh, the example I gave, as you know, is from uh, John 12, 7, and it's, it's the sense in which Judas Iscariot, he sees that the woman, Mary, is using some very expensive spikenard upon Jesus, and he asks, why was that not this spikenard sold for 300 pence and the results, the proceeds given to the poor? He's basically arguing, he said, this is a terrible use of spikenard. This should have been given to the poor instead of wasting it on Jesus, like this. Uh, but John then points out something very interesting that only God's word can reveal, which is the heart of the man. He says, he didn't say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he was the one holding the bag in which all the uh, finances for the disciples were kept. He was the treasurer for the, the 12 disciples. And he was stealing from the bag continually. He was on the take. And that's why he was saying, why wasn't the money put in here where I could steal from it mm. as opposed to being given to Jesus? And that's really what's happening. When people usually say, especially government people in government say, why aren't we giving this money to the poor? But you're not giving it to the poor. You have this tremendous bureaucratic overhead that's getting funded and very little of the money is actually going to the poor, which is very funny because they say if, if any private pension fund was to operate like Social Security, the people who run, ran it would be thrown in jail immediately right. for malfeasance and uh, failing the fiduciary responsibilities. And so it is with when we say, oh, here's a charity, and every dollar you give to this charity, only seven cents goes to the people who are supposed to be the recipients of the charity because the other um, 93% is being siphoned off the top for overhead. 
Right. Well, the government's overhead is not much better than the very various charities that they go against and, and, and try to put out of business and complain about. Not to mention it's not the jurisdiction of civil government to right. distribute charity. So right. that's why if, if you don't get underneath the issue, if we're, if you're just arguing over should who does this, is this the right place to receive the funds, you've missed the point. It's outside God's law. Yep. Therefore, anybody who buys into it as the lesser of two evil I would say is demonstrating a low moral intelligence because they're basing it on their feelings or what's beneficial to them, not what the word of God says. And of course, that is a reason why the government says we have to do it because you're saying the people won't do it. See, the people aren't going to save up for a rainy day. So we had to take some of their money and put it in the social security fund and put it in a lockbox, as Al Gore says, and save it for them. So it's safe from all kinds of termites eating it away of course it's long gone <laughs> i've been gone for a long, for a long long time but it sounded like a good line and uh, people accept this that, oh they're helping us out government is our friend and it's not you know our enemy the state there's a book by what, g albert knock and that title is a classic title of what these really the situation is the government appeals to our baser instincts so that we don't deal with say the poor in the correct biblical way, which involves a personal, not an institutional orientation. And we'll be able to resolve poverty under biblical law, Deuteronomy 14, um, principles applied, uh, if we actually were responsible and personal instead of impersonal and wanting to fop this off on somebody else, to foist the responsibility onto the government. At that point, of course, when the government's doing it, it's going to cost six times as much and be completely ineffective. And that's where we stand now. Um, and so the question is, what is the more moral thing for people to do it God's way and actually solve poverty or for the state to do it? Here's the deal is that when the state does it, people feel they're entitled to those monies that are being given to them in the form of a welfare check, say, uh, and they don't want to be grateful. They'd rather feel entitled to it. So if that means the state has to do it, so be it. So now we have a character problem in the people that they would rather not say thank you when the poor tithe pulls them out of poverty. They'd rather say, I want mine and demand, where's my welfare check? Because I don't have to thank anybody for it. It's my due. And uh, so now we have another issue is covetousness, the notion that I don't want to say thank you because that means dependence. Uh, we're dependent on God. We're dependent on fellow fellow man. And to try to rule all that out and to build a system in violation of dependence uh, is to play at God. And that's fundamentally immoral because right there, the very first commandment is being violated. We have another God other than uh, Jehovah. And uh, the false God that we have is, is going to mistreat us and to teach us how to mistreat each other by substituting a false morality for a true one. And in the process, make us dependent on the state, which becomes an impersonal provider, mm -hmm. as opposed to in the biblical orientation, God is a person, he's three persons, and we interact on that level. So they're not only throwing the baby out with the bathwater, they're saying, we don't need a bath, but in the process, they get filthy, 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 and there's nothing mm -hmm. they can do about it. Yeah, absolutely right. So there was another quote, and I think this was by uh, Dr. Rush Dooney, which really stuck with me. What churchmen fail to see, the ungodly clearly recognize. God's law requires holiness, whereas man's law requires conformity. To me, that's a very profound statement. Flesh that out a little bit, if you would. Right. And that's the reason they prefer 
man's law. They want conformity. They want everyone to do things a certain way, uh, and it's going to be the state way. It's going to be an, an impersonal method of doing things. Whereas holiness you, you know, is a whole different ball game, uh, and the that's exactly what these, we want to have people ruling us in, under humanism that are sinners like we are, that that basically no better than we are, and so we can always legitimately complain that they're the bums up in Washington D.C or the state capitals, or the uh, city halls in this country, um, because that means that we can, can feel morally superior, even though, of course, even though we're crumbs, crummy too. <laughs> but the point is, um, conformity is all that's required. They're going to require, just follow these rules, and you're in a good shape. You know, That's why the, uh, and Paul laid this out for us, when he said he's a Jew who is one inwardly. This is kind of a stunning claim that he makes in the book of Romans. And uh, I think that we have to understand it, that there's an inward component to morality, and biblical law speaks to it continually. I mean, the Tenth Commandment is already a heart matter, thou shalt not covet these things. Uh, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's property, your neighbor's oxen. I've never been interested in oxen, but apparently in the past <laughs> this was a big thing. And uh, But there's a quality equivalent of oxen today. It might be his um, Tesla or something. I don't know. Uh, that would be more people. like his donkey. Oh, his donkey. His oxen yeah. would probably be more like his tools or the things he needs to do his work. Correct. Yeah, that would grind out the grain, right? Yeah. But yeah, the humanist knows, uh, and he sees something in biblical law that Christians aren't grasping, that the requirement is holiness, which is, uh, which amounts to godliness. Uh, it's a, it's a profound thing in so many respects because the standard is not simply conformity. You can do everything correctly externally and still be hating God in your heart, you see. And God will hold us accountable for that. That's going to be enough to separate us from God in itself. Uh, so that's why you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. It speaks to the most interior part of man. The state cannot do that. The state can say nothing about your heart and how, what, what the demands of it. It can only demand external conformity, uh, which can be fraudulent. That's the whole point, even under in the most draconian, tyrannical, despotic rules that have been around. They realize that we can't really trust people's hearts. There's always going to be a problem. There's always going to be something that could trigger a rebellion, uh, a sudden sense of we want to be liberated from this nonsense. Because conformity only goes so far. It, it's external conformity is what it is. This is what the state can put in place with all its regulations and all its rules, uh, but they cannot change the human hearts. And that means that the their attempt to make a new society, a new culture, a new world, through external rules, through conformity, won't get anywhere. It's only right. through holiness and regeneration that change from within actually then is realized to the external. It goes from the inside out. And that's the, they correctly say the kingdom of God is one of the few kingdoms that works from the inside out. The idea of humanistic man in their kingdom is we're going to work from the outside in. We'll mm-hmm. continue to make you conform until you uh, spontaneously walk by Pavlovian training, as it were. You've been inculcated and indoctrinated to these things. And yet some of the most horrendous despotic rules and tyrannies that have ever existed have fallen apart uh, because you cannot control everything in the human heart. Uh, it, it is it, it seems to defy all attempts to rein it in. 
after all, even the scriptures say that the heart is wicked and desperately uh, evil, evil and desperately wicked above all things who can know it. And therefore, until you change the heart, uh, simply getting everyone to conform by force uh, is not going to be an ultimate solution. There's going to be enough force to keep the lid on the pot from boiling over eventually. Right. Now, they might boil over and create another despotic tyranny later. Tsar's Russia was so bad that we have to have Lenin come in and fix things for us. Uh Uh-oh, that didn't look well. Oh, Stalin's going to come in and fix things for us. Uh Uh-oh, that got worse. So uh, the answers, and these were done all in the name of morality. Uh, they say it's immoral for these people to rule, for this class to be on top of this other class. Uh, you know, so we need to deal with this in a way to overthrow all these injustices. So on the name of, of morality and ethics, all these revolutions were put into effect, but the results have not been close to what was promised. Oh, they've because- been catastrophic. And now we can look back and say they just didn't do it right. That's why people embrace socialism. If they had just done it right, it would have been different. Well, the point is they did it right, and it failed. Interestingly enough, within the church, we have a strong double-mindedness, which I think reveals a low moral IQ. Because you make the point that fidelity is the measure of moral intelligence, now, you have people who will throw out the Old Testament. Yes, yeah, you read it, because if you're going to read through the Bible in a year, you read it. But you don't really look at it as authoritative. And what I think is interesting, people will resort to, well, the heavens declare the glory of God. All I have to do is look around and I know. Well, the heavens don't declare the righteousness of God or the justice of God. That's reserved to the word of God. And if you're going to throw that out, then you start having a smushy standard. So we can say, that person's a good person. Okay, is that person in covenant with Jesus Christ? Well, no, but he's a good person. So we're making a moral judgment based on this fuzzy stuff. So it begs the question, can anyone be truly wise, smart, or intelligent if they don't fear the Lord? Well, the scriptures certainly indicate that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And if you do not fear God, well, there's all sorts of problems right there. Uh, and we face them right now. Ask a, uh, the average Christian, who did you vote for in the last election? Chances are they're going to say something that's going to be in violation of a command in Scripture. It's in Second Samuel. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. This is not optional. This is laid out because the preceding half verse says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake unto me, saying, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So you you didn't say he who gazes into the heavens and appreciates God's handiwork can rule over men. No, he who he has to fear God and must be just. And justice is determined by, like you said, the law of God. It's the determination. That would have been the standard at the time Second Samuel uh, it was delivered and, and put in writing for us. So what happens is that Christians simply set aside this rule. God says they must be just. They must rule in the fear of God, and they don't. And Christians will justify this with all sorts of machinations and tricky reasoning and rationales as to why they're breaking God's laws in this respect. And therefore, you get the government you deserve, as Dr. Rishwani kept saying. Uh, This is a given, like people like priests. You get the government that you deserve. You get the government that you are hungering for. And if you're hungering for certain things, certain favors, certain partialities, 
boom, you're going to, when you get it, you're going to get a lot more than that. Uh, you're going to get something very different than God's government. You're going to get man's government. Uh, and there's a reason, therefore, why David, when he was confronted with this sin, he says, let me not fall into the hands of man. Let me fall into you know, into the hands of God for disposition of my judgment. Because he knew with God, it was at least would be just. And he was merciful to men, could not be trusted. And unfortunately, now we have what? Trust of men. And there's a curse built into that right there in Jeremiah 17, 5. I think I quote it every week lately <laughs> to somebody. <laughs> uh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man who makes flesh his arm. And this is what human government's all about. And trust in man is condemned in Scripture. We're to trust God. And that means and, uh, one way we trust him is to actually obey him and trust that his word's going to deliver the fruit and the blessings that it's promised to us. It's there in Psalm 1. You know, who's the man who's blessed? The one who meditates upon God's law day and night and delights upon it. On it. But the wicked aren't like that. Yeah. And so here, here's morality laid out. And the other right reason that you need to have an objective standard is because we're working, walking in darkness here culturally. And Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and the testimony, they speak not according to these, is because there's no light of dawn in them. There can be no morning for this darkness until God's law and the testimonies, which are the prophetic explanation of God's law and application, are taught. You have to speak according to God's law. And those words bring light and push back the darkness, push back partiality, push back injustice. God's law alone does this. Uh, and if you don't speak according to God's law, if you're going to speak according to how pretty the heavens are or some modern humanistic notions of justice, the darkness not only stays, it actually gets worse because darkness uh, builds upon itself. Uh, every transgression, of course, creates – now we have more transgressions that have to answer it. And exactly. That's, well, that's what we face. So – we made the statement before that man-made laws are put into place to protect sin. I would say the same holds true for humanistic theologies. So we have those who espouse two kingdoms. There's, you know, God's law rule is in this area and man's rule is in this area. And the goal is maybe to help man's rule become better or improve. But just by doing that, covering the sin of failing to not have other gods before God. In other words, we're basically saying God has to share our loyalties and our allegiance. I don't think he's obligated to do that. No, I don't think so either. But isn't that the implicit <laughs> um, understanding if we say, well, that's just the kingdom of man. You know, I don't have to worry about that as if God's happy with a divided kingdom where half of it is disregarding him. I understand that the make this argument, but I look at Daniel 2, and we see a stone cut without hands. Obviously, it's God's kingdom because no human hand has touched it. Uh, that's in view here, and it says, and it smashes all the other kingdoms in pieces and consumes them, and they're driven away like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. So I don't see coexistence between God's kingdom uh, and the kingdoms of the world. I see conquest and absorption into God's kingdom over time, that the kingdoms of this world are being uh, consumed, if you will, and being incorporated into the uh, kingdom of God. It's like the leavened uh, dough be, uh, starts to outrun the unleavened part of it until everything's finally leavened. There's a process of expansion 
both of the leaven and the meal that Jesus referred to in the parable, and the stone grows until it fills the entire world. There's no room for another kingdom at that point. There's only one kingdom at the end, and it's God's kingdom. And it, uh, it, and it consumes all the other kingdoms and whatever parts aren't consumed or shaft that are, isn't useful and is burned up. So, uh, I don't see how the, the two kingdom guys get off uh, their model off without having to poo poo an awful lot of scripture. And I think they need to consider, are we being faithful to what's being called here? They can quote parts of Calvin, but Calvin's inconsistent here, you see. There are parts of Calvin which support the notion that God's kingdom will have dominion over the entire world. Uh, he's the governor among the nations, it says plainly in Psalm 22. Uh, and what do we do with that? You know, you can't just pick and choose. And I think they pick and choose because also now they can have or buy some peace with the humanists, saying, we don't want to touch the human kingdoms. Um, but boy, there's what a price they pay for that peace because they're suing for peace and setting aside God's kingdom and, and its scope. Uh, it's called uh, limiting the Holy One of Israel in the Psalms. God asked once in Numbers, is this the Lord's hand waxed short? You know, what, what makes you think I cannot do all these things and why can't I have my kingdom? In fact, the, the unity of the kingdom seems to be set forth in Revelation eleven fifteen, all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall rule forever and ever. This doesn't seem to indicate that there's coexistence, but rather there again is the absorption. That is, that everything comes into and flows. In fact, that's the word used in, in uh, Isaiah 2. All the nations of the world will flow unto Zion and form the mountain of the house of the Lord. So they all flow together to form the one mountain, which is God's kingdom. Uh, some flow slower than others. It's been a long process, but there's going to be a lot of more flowing going on as uh, this confluence, as it were, of nations comes into play. So the notion that there's always going to be this kingdom of man, uh, and it's always going to, and we should actually protect that dis- that kingdom and not let the things of God intrude on it, like holiness, righteousness, justice. Uh, there's, and the other thing that scares me, you know, scares me, concerns me, I guess I should say, but it's, it's scary that theologians do this, is they argue all of this from the covenant of Noah and saying, this is the one that stands. You know, what happens to Abraham and everything that was supposed to go with Abraham? Why would you use the Noah covenant? Uh, by the way, even the Noah covenant doesn't give them what they want. If you read it, it talks about you know, Japheth dwelling in the twins, tents of Shem. <laughs> There's a unity that comes up at the end of the, of the, of the prophecy over Noah. So uh, surprise, surprise, everyone is unified <laughs> at the end of the picture. And it's in Shem, not in Japheth. So it's in the godly seed, the godly line, that everything coalesces, where the confluence all is centered. So uh, when we play theology like that, uh, I think they are doing what Paul says is called sounding an indistinct trumpet. And people then say, oh, then uh, roughly uh, Romans 13, obviously, therefore, has reference to uh, do whatever the civil magistrate tells you to do. They're ordained by God. Uh, but at no point do we actually pay any close attention to uh, the better renderings of those critical seven verses. There's a lot more going on in that than the uh, radical two-kingdom theorists believe is the case. And so, therefore, we need to have an open dialogue on this and uh, open correction, and that's not being allowed. Uh, There's a lot of deplatforming going on, and by the way, also harsh words and condemning uh, people on the other side of this question, like ourselves. I think that that's going to 
create heat rather than light. You get light when you actually open up the scriptures to these questions, and we're not getting that. We're getting a lot of heat in, instead, because there's, they seem to be intent on protecting the status quo uh, and making sure that nobody gets off on the wrong footing and that they keep God penned up and walled up inside the church. That's the important thing. And Dr. Mm-hmm. has some very profound things to say about it. He says, if you try to pen and, and, and lock Jesus up in the church, he'll shatter the walls of the church just like he shattered the walls of the tomb. And I think that's going to be the problem. Uh, it says that you're, you're trying to shut in the wrong guy, <laughs> capital right. G guy. That guy is not meant to be. He's going to have the dominion over all things and to restrict the scope of his domain is false. He, he is king over all these reign, all these things. He's also priest at the same time. So all his offices have to be given a full consideration and taught in their fullness. And I don't think the two kingdom guys who try to say will always have these two kingdoms and there really should be very little mixture and uh, concourse between them. Uh, let, let them do their thing. We'll do our things in the church. They'll do things, their things out in the state. Uh, and that means that God really didn't speak to the state except what he said in Noah, which says, you know, prosecute, murder, criminals, people, murderers. And I think there's a lot more to, in fact, they lose even on this because most of the times the state doesn't prosecute murderers. So the whole idea of we're going to appeal to the covenant of Noah falls flat on its face in actual practical application. So it's a lot of talk ultimately because they, they don't deliver. So when there is a emphasis on personal salvation, then this two kingdom theology makes sense. You're just going to stand at the right bus stop, right? It's like you just know what line to get into. And yet Jesus said that the truth makes you free. And if you're in the sun, you're free indeed. So biblical morality is the only protection for freedom, true freedom, as opposed to license and conformity. Is right. is that a correct view? Correct. We read in Isaiah 4, a favorite passage of mine, upon all the glory shall be a defense as a protection for those who are glorifying God in all that they do. Uh, a nation itself will be protected ex- from external harm, military attack, etc., if it glorifies God. We do not. Uh, we do not in so many foundational ways, starting with our economics, but also our foreign policy, also our internal policy, also the fact that we have a government that's 11,000 times bigger than what God would allow uh, in terms of funding it. So uh, basically we've created a false god, and to allow the false god doesn't make sense because, as Rushdie says, the true God brooks no rivals, and uh, American government does believe it is at the apex of all authority. And for the uh, two kingdom guys to basically say, well, for all intents and purposes, for what God intends for them to do, that is true. There is you know, no other, um, nothing else that would be uh, of a higher authority, uh, so far as God is concerned. But in actual fact, there is. When you rule God out of the equation, you have a made a horrible mistake. You removed the most important factor, the deciding factor, the factor that trumps all other factors because only it's God's will that's going to be done. Nobody else's will is going to ultimately be done. Everyone else's situation is going to fall apart. You know, the whole shaking that's going on now, according to Hebrews 12, uh, is designed so that the only the unshakable things will remain. Everything that's going to, that is opposed to God's kingdom will be shaken and laid in ruins so that the, the unshakable kingdom will remain. And the one thing about the unshakable kingdom is it has an unshakable uh, fixed morality that's laid out in God's law. 
And that, that law is going to last when the universe doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, it has more staying power and more permanence than anything because it's the word of God's word, not the word of man, but the word of God. So I hope listeners will use this discussion as a springboard. The essay is available at calcine.edu. And if you're a subscriber, you actually get one in the mail. But uh, Martin, you go into a lot more detail. You give a lot more basis for the things we talked about. And I just want to end on this note, and that is maybe we need to reevaluate how we think, how we assign good, bad. Who do we say smart, not smart? Who is, is someone acting ethically if they're superficially doing something, but at the heart, they're rebelling against God? And I think that it's good to not be so quick to judge people unless you use the standard that God's provided. So we don't need innovation. We don't need a candidate for civil government who's going to come up with something new. It's the something old that we haven't been faithful to and need to be faithful to. And it boils down to this. Are we building on the rock or on the sand? If you're not paying attention to what God says, you're building on sand by definition. The building might last for a little while, but when the storm comes, it'll blow it to smithereens. But the person with moral intelligence will build on the rock, will build on Christ's words. And when the storms of life come, that building will stand. And therefore, the storm will discriminate between the good and the bad right then and there. Yeah, they'll be free indeed. The house won't crumble. That house mm-hmm. built on sand isn't all that free when you can't distinguish it from the ocean. They they believe it's the cheap way to go because it's more expensive to build a house on rock, but right. it, the, the house will actually last and do you some good. Very good. All right. Well, Martin, thanks for having this discussion. Again, Arise and Build is the bi-monthly publication of the Chalcedon Foundation. I'd encourage you to subscribe. I personally like to read things I'm holding as opposed to online. I realize that's not everybody's cup of tea, but uh, subscribers can get the these publications delivered to them. So thanks again, Martin. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of us, and we'll talk with you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.